Have you ever been surfing through the TV and you find a movie that comes on? Maybe a TV show, but a movie probably fits my description better here. And it engages you immediately with what's happening. Uh, Maybe you've heard about it before and you sort of know the basic plot, but it grabs your attention and you watch it from that point to the end. Uh, And the the movie is memorable to you. Maybe you've even seen it before. Uh, That happened to me when I watched the movie. This date date myself again, especially for you guys. Uh, A Few Good Men. Remember Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men? He has that famous quote, you can't handle the truth, right? And so I remember watching this court scene, and I thought, this movie is so great, and all these things, are so, this is an unbelievable reality. And, uh, and then I remember later on having this conversation with my friends about, oh, have you seen A Few Good Men? And they're like, yeah, I saw it. It was this great movie. And I was like, yeah, wasn't it cool? And Jack Nicholson said, you know, you can't handle the truth. And they're like, yeah, and, and because he had done these things earlier. And I was like, you did what? What happened earlier? There's, I mean, there's stuff that happened in the movie before this? Right? And of course, those of you who have seen the movie, or those of you who haven't, who I'm about to blow it for, know that there was an incident on a military base where Jack Nicholson, as a commanding officer, was involved in ordering a command that ended up in the, in, uh, the death uh, of a Marine. And so he was being prosecuted, or these other men were being prosecuted, and their defense team was trying to prove that they'd been given an order. And of course, it was Jack Nicholson who gave the order, thus leading to the famous quote, you can't handle the truth, because he was saying uh, to them, you can't understand why I did what I did. Sometimes I think Easter is a little bit like that silly story, right? In that we come into this and we get sort of captured by this interesting and powerful story of Jesus resurrected, rising from the dead, and we love the story and we're enraptured with it, but we fail to understand the full context of everything that has happened to lead us to that point. And so this morning, what I want us to do is we consider what it means to be people who have been set free is to sort of set the story of the resurrection in the larger story that God has been and continues to tell in our world. You might be familiar with the opening chapter of the book of Genesis. That is the opening chapter of the full story of God as we have it in written form. Where God says, in the beginning, right? And then he begins to tell about over this, the course of this seven-day structure that Genesis sets forward, that God is creating uh, from nothing all of these things. The first thing we realize in this story is that God is pre-existent, right? In the beginning, God was. There never was a time that God wasn't. God is the, is the, the, the author of creation, but he himself is not a created being. And God is the giver of all these things we have. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And of course, if you, if you know the story a little bit, he, he creates light, he creates night and day, he creates animals, and, and then it, it kind of leads up to this, this really important climax on the sixth day when he creates man and ultimately woman, right? And it says that, that they were created in his image. And there's something powerful about the reality that God has created humanity to to be a reflection of who he is in the world. So God, the pre-existent God, the creator, uh, who, who theologians will say, creates ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing, speaks the world into existence. And the crowning move of this is humanity who is in 
His image. And the story is set up to just be brilliant. If you're familiar with the story, it takes a sharp right turn in Genesis chapter 3. When humanity, Adam and Eve both, as as representatives of all of humanity, decide that even though there was never a time when God was not, right? That God is pre-existent and God is the author of all creation, that they needed to play God to the world. At the core of it, we love the, we we remember the story, right, from Sunday school or from hearing these stories uh, uh, from our past or even from our present. That is that, that Adam and Eve were tempted by the apple on this tree and then they just couldn't resist this juicy, delicious apple, right? And that's always perplexed me because there are many things food-wise that will tempt me. An apple, as good as it is, is never going to get me to make a wrong choice. It just isn't, you know? And you know how that goes. But the, the issue was, if you read it very carefully, the issue wasn't the apple. The issue was that the serpent said to them, God knows if you eat this, you will be like him. And for them, it was no longer good enough to be made in God's image. It was now important for them to be God. And to take control, to wrestle control of their existence away from God. It was a mistake. It was a wrong choice. It broke all kinds of relationships, chiefly the relationship with God. So you read on in that account in Genesis, you find that God says that what he, what he deemed to be very good, right? When he, when he created man and, and he looked over all of his creation, he says, this is very good. Now had turned to something that was not good enough. Because God said, you can't be here in this garden with me anymore. And he moved them outside of the garden and he sort of locked the gate as they went out and put angelic guards so they couldn't come back in. There was this massive barrier between God and man who was made in his image. Mistake, a wrong choice, a broken relationship, a wrestling of control away from God who rightfully deserves it into their hands. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5, wants them to understand that even though it was Adam and Eve thousands of years ago, we too were there with them. And however you want to figure that out theologically is not our point this morning. But the point is this, that as part of, as part of humanity, our connection to them is that we share the same story. Created in God's image, but so given to wrestling control of our lives out of God's hands and into our own, making mistakes, making wrong choices, damaging relationships. The truth is, as Paul would say to the Romans, we have a past, don't we? We've got a past. We've got a whole bunch of stories that define our past. And most of those stories are about wrong choices and mistakes and damaged relationships. 
And our past is defined by this brokenness in so many ways. Even all the good things we do don't sort of weigh out this reality of brokenness, right? It's that, you know, there's so much good that we do, but we're not good enough. Rather than suggest that that's a judgment of God on us this morning, I would suggest that that's your judgment on yourself, if you're anything like me. Think of what I could be and what I am. What I should be and who I am. The gift of being a father and how I misuse that at times. The gift of being a husband and how I take that for granted and misuse it at times, right? The gift of being a friend. In so many ways, even though there's so much good, we aren't quite good enough. We are defined by our past. Think about any famous person, and perhaps the quickest thing that will come to your mind is a failure that they have perpetrated, as opposed to all of the good things that they have done. In many ways, the stench of our past defines us. Two days ago, we were driving home from spending some uh, Easter time with my family, and uh, the journey from the Lancaster area to the Lehigh Valley is an unpleasant one, no matter how you do it, because they just haven't decided to make a proper road system that gets there, right? You know this. And so you can either choose to go 35 miles an hour on 222 through this town that I don't think anyone lives in. I'm not sure. Uh, Or you can climb up 61, go all the way out of your way to Hamburg, and then finally hit a true interstate and come over. So if we're coming home in the evening, we almost always go through 222, and we go through Reading, and then there's this town right outside of Reading called Muhlenberg, and there's plenty of great things in Muhlenberg, but the one thing our family knows it for is this. It has mushroom houses right off 222. Have you been by these? Like you might have known what it was, but you, you know the smell, right? You've been by it, and the stench of these mushroom houses is piercing almost all the time when you go by it. And so um, we're blessed to have... Uh, have um, be able to show videos in our car for our boys for long rides is a blessing for them. It's a blessing for, for me. Um, and they'll be enveloped in, you know, some video and we'll pass through there and I'll hear one of them yell, mushroom houses, right? And I'm like, yep, there's no denying the mushroom house. I'm sure Muhlenberg has plenty to offer. I'm sure it's a great place to raise a family, to live, to have a job, but it also has mushroom houses. And for many of us, this is our past, right? All of the good things we try to do to overcome these mistakes, these miscues, these errors, these wrong choices, these broken relationships, can't overcome the stench of the realities. And here's the truth about our past, too. It's not just about our wrong choices. It's not just about our mistakes or our broken relationships. It's about the wrong choices and the mistakes and the broken relationships that have been thrust upon us by other people, right? Their wrong choices that have hurt us and broken a relationship with us. Their mistakes that have deeply pained us. Here's the truth about our past. We carry it around religiously, don't we? And I mean that in every sense of the word. Religiously to mean we we just have it all the time, we never let go, And we also carry it religiously because we've tried to deal with it through religion. In other words, I got my good efforts towards God or church or whatever, if they outweigh this, maybe it'll deal with it. But the truth is, if you drive on 222 to Reading today, 
the mushroom house is still going to smell. You know? And this is our lives. We carry this around religiously. Like a dad carrying the luggage for his family to the airport. Right? You ever seen one of those guys? The mom is corralling all the little kids and the dad has got 87 pieces of suitcases on him trying to go there. But imagine that picture if he never makes it to the baggage check-in. That's how we live our lives. Something is amiss here. Or maybe this illustration will hit you better because this is a personal illustration for me. Going to the shore is not one of my favorite things to do. I think it's beautiful. I think the waves crashing are, are wonderful. It's a nice sunny day. But I've got to be honest with you, in about 15 to 20 minutes, I've had my experience. And I'm ready to go back to the air conditioning with a book or the boardwalk where people are actually engaging with each other and I don't have to just sit there and hope that something happens. You know? <laughs> Defend myself against seagulls who own the world at the shore. When our boys were younger, we used to have to carry their equipment to the beach. Have you ever had this experience? It makes, if you love the beach, having to do that will make you never want to go to the beach again, Right? You get there, and all you want to do is go home and take a nap. You see, you see pictures of these people, moms or dads or grandpas or grandmas or friends, carrying these wagons full of stuff to the beach. And you know that when you get to the beach, trying to pull the wagons is impossible, unless you've invested your money in those special beach wagons. But doing that would mean you have to be committed to this beach vacation year after year after year, right? And so I just remember when I was young, just like dying, and then of course... My parents, they, they love to have this big, this big aluminum tent that everyone can sit under because we go to the beach so that we can't be in the sun, right? <laughs> and so I'm carrying it on my shoulder and pulling these wagons around. And you see these people at the beach, and I think it's a perfect illustration of how we live our lives. Because the tent on your shoulder is all the wrong choices that you continue to feel guilty about. And the wagon full of stuff is not beach chairs and boogie boards and skin boards and every other board known to man and goggles and flippers and sandcastle building tools, but it's the remnants of broken relationships. It's the reminders of your mistakes. It's all the things that you and I have let define us. So the trip to the beach is no longer about soaking in the beauty of our Creator, but about all the baggage we have to take to even get there. Somehow, humanity took a hard right turn, and what was once very good has become not good enough. And friends, it's into this mess that Jesus shows up on the scene. We love to celebrate Christmas, and we love the story of the manger, and we love the story of that there was no room in the inn, and the baby was born, and there was cattle, and goats, and lambs, and it was this cool thing. The picture is not that, like, oh, wasn't it cool, this idyllic little thing. It was, he came into the most broken circumstances that could possibly exist. Leaving the comforts of heaven to come into our mess. And one of Jesus' disciples named John 
when he wanted to sit down and write the story of his experience with Jesus and, and help all of his readers know just who Jesus was, he's very careful in writing his story to let us know that Jesus enters into this mess because he tells his story in the same way as the book of Genesis opens. You don't need to open your Bible, but feel free. I'm in John chapter 1. I'm just going to be picking and and moving through here quickly. Listen to how the story of Jesus starts and tell me in your mind what it sounds like. In the beginning are the first three words of John. Right? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. The Word is the way that John is speaking of Jesus here. And what he's saying to us is what? That there was never a time when the Word was not. That Jesus, as God, is pre-existent. He predates creation. He predates everything because He's not a created being. That He is with the Father, an agent of creation, Paul would later say in his letter to the Colossians. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. John says the same thing here. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was, check this out, the light of all mankind. What's the first thing that gets created, right? We hear of the God created light, right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip to verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't know him. He came to that which was his own, But his own did not receive him. This is the story of the incarnation, right? This is also the story of creation, where the world has seized control as we are the creators, we are the rulers, we are the ones operating this show. We don't know the creator. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in him, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. And here he comes to the climax of his creation statement. The word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That is that now the one who created is going to enter into the mess of humanity. He's going to take on flesh. That this crowning achievement of the creation in Genesis, that God created man in his image, and it was very good. Now we see, spoken of Jesus, that he was the very image of the glory of God. Do you see it? He was what humanity was supposed to be. And he enters into the world. It is the high point of John's opening. Friends, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that when John is telling his story about Jesus, what he wants us to know more than anything is this has everything to do with creation. It has everything to do with creation. Why else write this way? And what you'll be fascinated to know or read later on today or this week, if you keep reading through John chapter 1, you see he begins to say things like, and the next day, da-da-da-da-da. And then the next day, da-da-da-da-da. And then the next day, this. And then the next day, this. 
in some ways figuratively almost going through the full week of creation. John wants us to know that the story of Jesus is fully enveloped in the story of creation. Why? Because if Jesus was coming into our mess to do something about it, it has to be that way. What's fascinating to me is that this whole story of of John sort of reimagining creation now through the incarnation of Jesus, it's a big way of saying Jesus coming from heaven to earth, it all ends up in this fascinating story in the beginning of John chapter 2. And I just want to spend a few minutes here this morning. This is the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine, right? Have you heard about this miracle before? Jesus is at a wedding, right? And it says his mom's at the wedding, all his disciples are at the wedding. They're at this wedding. We find out later it's in Bethany. This is an important place for Jesus. And uh, it comes to this moment where um, the, the groom and his family, they run out of wine. And this is a big social faux pas in that day, right? Because the whole town is gathered together for the celebration. It looks bad on them. And so G- Jesus' mom, it's fascinating, right? She comes up to him. Uh, and she says to him, this is verse 3 of chapter 2, uh, she's, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine, right? She's, she didn't come right out and say what she wants him to do, but, but he knows, right? You know, he, you know how your wife or your husband or your kids or your parents sometimes will do this? Hey, there's no more of this. So what you're saying to me then is you want me to get in the car and drive to the grocery store and get like, well, could you just ask me if I would go to the grocery store? You know? she, she's like, hey, Jesus, you notice there's no more wine? <laughs> And he's probably like, no, I, I'm really hoping to go home soon. This is a wedding. You know? <laughs> I apologize. Weddings are fantastic. I love them. Uh, listen to what he says. Woman, why do you involve me in this? This is going to be my answer. Rachel, I'm sorry. This will be my answer the next time. Right? <laughs> Adam, do you know we don't have any milk? Woman, why do you involve me in this? <laughs> I can't wait to tell you guys the story of how it went over. and Jesus says my hour has not yet come that'll be my follow up if you don't like the first one (laughs) but his mother being a great mom uh, just goes right to the servants and says do whatever he tells you she doesn't listen to anything he says right you just do whatever he says and he's like "All right, I'm in Uh, nearby stood six stone water jars the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial ceremonial washing each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill these jars with water. And so they did it, filled it to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did this. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. But the servants knew. Then he said to the bride, he took the bridegroom aside and he said to him, everyone brings out the best wine first. And then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That's a good plan, right? But you have saved the best for last. Now, what is going on in this miracle? Obviously, Jesus turns water into wine, and it's this this unbelievable, miraculous story. But we get to begin to understand what's happening at the end when when the, the master of the banquet basically says, hey, this is not the typical order of things, right? 
Because usually the best stuff comes out first. The people taste it and say it's good. Maybe they have a little bit too much. They no longer can really uh, decide the taste of good wine after that. We'll put it that way, right? And then you just bring out the cheap stuff because at that point it doesn't matter. But something has happened differently in this scenario in that the first wine was there, but the second batch of wine was far superior to the first. Friends, I think what's happening in this miracle is that we're finding out early on in John's story about Jesus that Jesus is going to disrupt the normal order of things. He's going to change the way things normally go. But what do we mean by that? Well, we have to think a little bit more deeply about exactly what's happening in this miracle, right? We've already said that John's very careful to put the, the incarnation of Jesus into um, creation language, right? And if you count the days in John, you can see that this wedding actually would happen on, in John's order, the sixth day. And this is fascinating stuff. It's the sixth day, it's a wedding, you know, on the original creation, the sixth day is when man, mankind was created. But now if we begin to think into the story of Jesus himself, the sixth day of the week is actually the day of his crucifixion, right? It's a Friday. The sixth day of the week is the day of his crucifixion. And we begin to think about some of the other details that are told in this story, right? What are the details? That the, the three jars that Jesus used to turn water into wine, what were they? He said they were, they were jars that were used to hold water for purification, right? And this was important stuff to have in this town, and certainly before a wedding. You needed to be pure in order to sort of be received by God. In the same way women would, and men would purify themselves before a wedding celebration, but rather than, than, than simply continuing to be vessels that hold Old Testament, Mosaic Covenant, law, rules, kind of purifying water, suddenly they become vessels that hold New Testament wine. We know that Jesus, later on at the Last Supper, will use wine to say... This represents my blood, which is, catch this, poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. That is, my blood represented by this wine is the new cleansing agent in my kingdom. Whereas once we would have to continually go to the jars of water to continually be clarified, excuse me, to continue to be cleansed from our mistakes, from our wrong choices, from our broken relationships, from our sin, time after time after time, Jesus in his death institutes something radical, a once-for-all covering of our misdeeds. He says, this cup represents a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. You begin to see what John is doing when he runs this miracle right up front in his story, in his gospel, and puts it at the end of this creation story of days 
to say that Jesus coming into our midst is going to change the normal cycle of things. He's going to do that by changing the way we're able to relate to God, no longer through continually going and being cleansed, but now through a once-for-all act. Friends, I think that the water turned into wine at the wedding feast in in Cana prefigures the great sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross of Calvary. The full essence of water turned into wine. But even more than that, we didn't read the first verse of this story, so let me just read it. I jumped into verse 3. And tell me if there's, a, there's an interesting phrase that doesn't start this. It says, on the third day a wedding took place. Now what on earth is John trying to do? Inasmuch as John is drawing our attention to the death of Jesus on the cross, he is likewise drawing our attention to the real climax of the story of Jesus, the one that we're here to celebrate today, that is on the third day he rose from the grave. Here's the story about the choice wine, friends. It is bought with the death of Jesus. And it is unveiled through his resurrection. Let me tell you something. If you are like the dad or the mom carrying all that stuff to the beach, right? If your past is defining you. If no matter what you do, you can't get past the mushroom stench of choices you've made in your past. Here's what I want you to know, and I think here's what Jesus prophetically says at this wedding in Cana. That was the first round of wine. And whereas in the old order of things, things started out good and just kind of got worse, in the new order of things that Jesus announces in this miracle and ultimately through his resurrection, what once was very good and then became not good enough is now changing from not good enough and going once again to very good. Jesus is announcing a new creation, a new wine, in and through his person and work on the cross and ultimately through his resurrection. This is what is happening. The first batch of wine is your past. And Jesus says, let it be your past. The choice wine is now being served. It's into this storyline that the resurrection makes all of the sense in the world. And it's no longer just this interesting, crazy, unbelievable story of how powerful God is. All of that completely true. But it actually becomes the full announcement that God has done a new thing through Jesus. That the old order of things has been shifted. That something new has begun. Think about this with me. We won't read John 20 again. Jess did a fantastic job reading it. If you go a few verses earlier into John chapter 19, when Jesus has has breathed his last on the cross, and when they take him down, this man Joseph from Arimathea, who is a secret follower of Jesus, 
basically goes and pleads for his body. They give it to him. It says he goes into a garden. Uh Uh-oh. And he finds a brand new tomb that has never been used before. And then as we begin John chapter 20, it says, early on the first day of the week. You skip over that sometimes? It's important. The women, and then ultimately the disciples, find the tomb of Jesus empty. And when they go to the tomb, what do they find? What once was a barrier has been rolled away. And who sits on it? The angelic guards saying hallelujah. What is John announcing in his gospel, friends? What went totally wrong in the garden has now been reversed through the person and work of Jesus. The angelic guard that once kept us out now announces that there is no barrier. The the barrier of the tomb that once kept us from God now has been rolled away. We have been made new. A new story in a new garden of a new and better Adam named Jesus. And why does it happen on the first day of the week? Because a whole new round of creation has begun, friends. And it is once again very good. Later on, after Jesus, after they've gone there and they can't find the body, and of course Mary gets the special visit from Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener, the rest of the disciples run away. They have no idea what's going on. Their whole world is blown as you and I would feel exactly the same way. And they're gathered together later, and then Jesus appears to them. This is fascinating, right? You know what it says about them? Read this later. It says that he breathed on them the Holy Spirit and life. Now, why is this important? Well, of course, they needed the Holy Spirit. This is great. But this is creation language again, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 6 or 7, somewhere in there. It says that God breathed life into the nostrils of man. That's how he came to life. In the same way that Jesus now, the resurrected Jesus, into the new creation, is breathing new life into his first followers. And so too into those of us who would follow him now. And this, friends is why Paul will write to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 that if any person is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. In the Greek, in the original language, we don't have a lot of the transition words in there. It simply says, if anyone in Christ, new creation. Right? It's just plain simple, you know? And what they're saying is the resurrection isn't this really cool thing that we kind of have to believe in if we're going to be Jesus people. No, it's if this didn't happen, no reason to follow Jesus, friends. But because this happened, not only is everything that he said true, but the whole new creation that God intends, not just for you, but for this entire world filled with brokenness and evil, is underway. 
and at the end of days will be fully finished. And we get to participate in it now. Through the invigorating power and work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, let me make a statement of truth over you this morning. You have been set free from your past. Every mistake, every wrong choice, every broken relationship that you have been the cause of, you are now set free. Because of the work of Jesus on the cross, and more importantly, because of the announcement of the empty tomb that new creation is underway. Likewise, every atrocity, every sin, every wrong choice that has been perpetrated against you, that has led to struggle for your entire life, can I just tell you, I'm not going to wave some magical wand over you and be gone, but I just want you to know it has no power over you anymore. You're going to have to work at that really hard because you're going to have to really believe what I just said is true. And friends, I need to really believe that what I just said is true. But it is We no longer are moms and dads desperately trying to get to the beach, right? And God forbid it be Wildwood, right? Have you been to Wildwood and and had to walk 30 miles from the edge of the beach to to the... Jesus says, I'll take your yoke and you take mine. He has collected the load and will carry it for you. You are no longer defined by your past. You are no longer defined by what people have done to you or done against you, what they have said about you or believed about you. You are no longer defined by the wrong choices you have made. You are no longer defined by the brokenness you have initiated. If any person is in Christ, new creation... The old has passed, the new has come. You have been set free. Your identity is no longer in your past. But your identity now is fully in the resurrection of Jesus. It's not that you raised yourself from the dead. It's that he is raised from the dead. It's not that you have overcome your bad with good. It's that he is alive and therefore his sacrifice has been accepted by God. It's not that you've corrected your path and now are an acceptable person to God. It's not about our performance. It's that the old system of ceremonial washing has been replaced with the wine that represents the blood of Christ. You are not defined by your past. You should not be held back by your past. You are no longer defeated by your past. Your past has no power over you. For all who would believe him, he gave the right to be called children of God, who says of you, it is very good. It is very 
good. Friends, over the next several weeks, we'll be teasing this out bit by bit. Understanding just how we are set free from our past and born as new creation into this world. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to no longer have to perform to be accepted. Right? We're going to be talking about religion and how it has misled many of us. Say, you've got to be good enough so that God will love you. It's a lie. He loves you. In the same way, we're going to say, you don't need to perform in order to be important to other people. We'll talk about what it means to be set free from that baggage to the life that God calls us to. We're going to talk about what it means to be set free from guilt. We're talking a lot about some of the baggage we carry then, right? That guess what? Even as you continue to not forgive yourself, you have already been forgiven. So drop it. And in the same way, let's learn to forgive each other. So much of our life is bogged down by unnecessary guilt. And not only are we free from these things, but we are free then to be happy. Right? Even in the midst of a broken life and a broken world, we can have joy. And we can rest. If any man or woman is in Christ, new creation. The old is past, the new is gone. In the new wedding economy of Jesus, the choice wine comes second. And we have the call to move from not good enough to very good. As sons and daughters of God. Can I pray with you?